0: We couldn't tell a murder story without a victim, and the Becker Rosenthal affair gives us plenty to pick from. Today's episode is about the man who was the root cause of this story, a story that expanded far beyond just his death. This is Kings of New York, Episode 2 Herman Beansey Rosenthal. Hello, Herman!
1: We get to say hello to him.
0: Yes, we do. Upon first glance, we get a very brief biography of Herman, an East Side gambler who had had enough of police going after him for bribes in exchange for protection. An immigrant from Russia or Estonia, according to some sources, He was a self-made man, notorious among other Lower East Side gamblers for having very few scruples about poaching rival businesses. He was not liked by any means, and in fact, seemingly antagonized anyone and everyone he could, while still maintaining personal connections with influential New Yorkers. He took full advantage of the relationships he did have, borrowing money, relying on their reputation, and basically doing every weasley thing in the book for personal gain
1: so according to his gravestone herman was born on september 3rd 1874 Uh, his official date on the gravestone is july 16th 1912 and according to records that we're going to get into later it was ruled a homicide herman was buried at washington cemetery on july 18th and the story goes that even with all of his connections not very many people of his numerous contacts his so-called friends not many of them attended the funeral. According to the distilled synopsis of who Herman was, I'm looking at Wikipedia. Herman was, quote-unquote, "...a small-time bookmaker and gambler who had complained to the press that his illegal casinos had been affected by the greed of Becker and his associates. Rosenthal accused the police of demanding a large percentage of his illegal profits as protection in exchange for allowing him to continue to operate." And that's about it. So this begs the question of why was the murder of some small, you know, two-bit bookie such a big deal, both in the sense of the insane amounts of media coverage that the murder received for years after, but also in the sense of why it had to happen at all. So who did Herman really cheese off and just how badly in order to warrant hiring the Lennox gang to take him out in such a public manner?
0: We're going to try a slightly different format with this episode than our first in that we're going to be getting right into the grid of it and we will be pulling out all the primary sources we could get our hands on. And
1: our primary source of information on Herman Rosenthal, and this is something we discussed in the previous episode, is of course newspapers. So in this case, we have dozens if not hundreds of articles that sensationalized the Becker-Rosenthal affair and to the point of dubbing it the crime of the century. The most important thing we learned in all this research is the fact that no newspaper is ever neutral and no reporter ever presents the story with a cool head and no agenda. I mean, if there's anything to gain from this, of course they would. So outside of the actual homicide coverage, we do find numerous articles that have helped us piece together just the kinds of shenanigans that Herman was up to prior to 1912. And so the first and unquestionable mention of Rosenthal comes to us from a New York Times article from as far back as Monday, February 19th, 1894. It's a short blurb titled Gambling House Raided, and there is a mention of a raid on a gambling house uh, the Saturday before at 311 East Broadway, and it was allegedly kept by Rosenthal. 28 men were arrested, although Herman was no nowhere to be found, which is going to be a Pretty consistent pattern for him. And each of the prisoners was fined $1 at the Essex Market Police Court.
0: And this would put him at about 19 or 20 since his birthday's in September, and he'd be 19 around this raid, already running his own gambling gig.
1: So young, and already getting himself into trouble.
0: How many gambling places did he end up running?
1: So reports vary, but it's in the ballpark of five or six at any given time. So we have him at 311 East Broadway in 1894. By 1909, he has a place at 123 3rd Avenue called the Red Raven Club. Literally across the street is another place at 387th. In March 1911, he's raided over at the Mauritania Club at 107 West 116th in Harlem, so that's four, and in May of the same year, there's a bombing at 152 West 44th, which was also associated with him, that's five. He was also known to run the Hesper Club on behalf of Tim Sullivan, the politician, which was located at 111th 2nd Avenue between 6th and 7th up until 1908, and happens to be conveniently literally around the corner and potentially sharing a wall with um, the place at 38 east 7th from 1909 so that's six that bombing in 1911 that particular building was back to back with the metropole aka the hotel rossoff currently known as the casablanca and it was the favorite hangout for rosenthal as well as so many others of his trade seems a little convenient i don't know if we're going to count that as seven or not and by 1912 Herman had just set up a new place at 104 West 45th in the Tenderloin, a five-minute walk from the Metropole, an even closer commute to whatever was left of the Hesper Club, and just literally in that block. So we're at 8.
0: And how do we know of these specific locations? Because it's not like Rosenthal or his associates would put any ads out in the paper.
1: The Red Raven Club and the place across the street at uh, 3087th figure very prominently in a 1909 case that was very heavily covered in newspapers so we have an article from the New York Times published on March 20th 1909 and it talks about a raid that was supposed to take place simultaneously at both locations and the timing seems to have failed so the Red Raven was raided a couple of minutes earlier which was just enough for 38 E7th to kind of clean up their act. So the police, uh, when raiding the Red Raven, were sent back by several sets of reinforced doors in the basement that were strong enough, they were like wrapped in iron, that the cops had to go right back upstairs to the main floor and start chopping the floor of the parlor to be able to get in. And as they're chopping the wall, the floor, the people downstairs start yelling, you know, it's okay, it's okay, we give up. And that's how they surrender and open up the doors. By this point, seven men were there. They were arrested. But other than a few poker chips and some torn cards, there was literally no evidence left that there was a gambling setup down below. The place at 38 East 7th, literally across the street, was raided a few minutes later, which possibly means that it was somebody had tipped off the gamblers inside. So by the time police came through, there was three sets of reinforced doors in that basement, and they were left wide open. So they could stroll right on in to find absolutely no evidence of any gambling activity, and nobody to arrest. The whole 1909 case was kind of based on the fact that there was a theory that there was a corrupt cop on the force who taped off whoever was gambling at 3887th and somehow influenced the raids either maybe causing the timing to be offset or something like that. As a point of comparison, so we have seven guys arrested at the Red Raven this time, 3 months earlier just around the time of the presidential election, the same place got raided and 250 people were arrested that night. So there was a lot of guys usually hanging out there.
0: Right. So what about the raid at the Mauritania Club in 1911?
1: This one is probably one of my most favorite raid stories that I've read of Herman's and others as well. It comes from an article in the New York Times again, March 3rd, 1911. The Mauritania had been on the hit list of Deputy Flynn since he started in Harlem. The whole idea was to clean up the gambling parlors and to shut them down. And the Mauritania was the white whale. So the police raid the place As the games are in full swing, it took about two hours to empty out the place and in the process to get everybody's statements and remove everybody from the premises. So again, we have reinforced doors, police are trying to break through, and once they do, they find themselves in this, you know, it's a cellar, it's a basement. So when they find themselves in this high-ceilinged hall with uh, smaller rooms kind of shooting off to the sides, in each one there's gamblers they're all scrambling to conceal roulette tables, cards, any sort of setup. There's a cashier over in the corner who's paying out winning bets for a race that had just finished in Jacksonville. So they have some sort of a contact calling in the race results from Jacksonville. There's a bank of telephones along one wall that the phones keep going off. So either they're taking bets over the phones or they're getting the information about race results from various tracks. And so as the gamblers are being rounded up. Some are even noted as they're recognized by the police as old-time offenders. You know, they're, they're guys that they all know each other. 14 people are arrested on the spot. And as this is happening, the next race in Jacksonville was the fourth one of the day. was about to start, and so the phones go off, and Deputy Flynn decides to just run with it. So he answers the phone and he pretends to be one of the gamblers. He chats the guy up and he keeps going with it until the person on the other line actually reveals class- classified information. He starts naming people. He starts naming, you know, who's he wants to pay the bet to. And at which point, Deputy Flynn says, well, to tell you the truth, your guy's going down at the patrol wagon because a couple of cops have got him. To which the response is, oh... The guy still managed to put a bed in with Deputy Flynn, and then this happens several other times until Flynn just stops taking calls because the calls are still coming in.
0: Okay, so you mentioned a bomb. Tell us more about that.
1: <laughs> yeah. So Rosethal just keeps getting more ridiculous. So in 1911, Rosenthal and his buddy Bridgie Weber, who we've talked about a little bit previously, we're going to talk about him a lot more. He was another fellow gambler and they were at each other's throats. So there would be like months that they were the best of friends and other months that they're literally hiring hitmen to take each other out. Allegedly, in this particular case, Rosenthal moved in on Weber's turf We're not sure what that means exactly, whether it's because he opened a gambling house or what probably more likely that happened around this time is that he tried to steal some of Bridgie's uh, working girls, if you know what I mean, to have them work for uh, Rosenthal instead. And so in May of 1911, now mind you, he just got raided in March 1911 at Mortania. So this is in May. According to the Times Union of Brooklyn, rosenthal's other place at west 44th has a bomb go off in the hallway rosenthal alleged that he ran a lodging house and that's what's in the newspapers is that when he's interviewed by the police he claims that it's a lodging house and there's people out there on the street in bathrobes and pajamas and everything so he's clearly trying to sell the gig but it was a very poorly kept secret that this was yet another one of his gambling parlors
0: By 1912, he seems to have an established reputation and a repertoire of running all sorts of dens of vice. So back at the New Year's Eve party that's hosted at the Elks Club, Rosenthal allegedly befriends Lieutenant Charles Becker and they become fast friends. And that makes total sense, because no better friend than a cop if you want to keep the raids to a minimum. So, allegedly, they became such good friends that by the end of the night, Becker's getting his arms around Rosenthal, he's kissing him, and he's telling other guests that they're best friends, and Becker promises Rosenthal anything and everything, and all that he needs to do is ask. This has a bad idea written all over it.
1: Yeah, Becker would definitely come to regret this promise by April of 1912. By by this point, Becker is at the head of the Strong Arm Squad, which was formed exclusively to deal with the gambling problem in the city. This was formed after all of the goings-on in 1911, going into 1912. And the squad's focus was specifically to raid gambling parlors and make sure that they don't reopen again. A lot of the time what would happen is a place would get raided Saturday night, Monday morning it's back up and running. The other guys did not like that very much, the other gamblers. Now, remembering that Becker was no choir boy, there was already... There were already certain rumors going around about him that, you know, he had an anger problem, that he kind of looked the other way on certain things. And so when Rosenthal was looking to open up his new place at 104 West 45th, when he went to borrow money from his benefactor, Tim Sullivan, he kind of already had this established knowledge about Becker. So, when Tim Sullivan refused to give Herman money, which was a first for him. Up until this point, Sullivan would speak very highly of Rosenthal as well as his other protege, Arnold Rothstein. They were both his boys, and Tim covered for them in every way possible. And so all of a sudden, he denies rosenthal this money. Whether it was illness, family influence, political pressure to dissociate from other gamblers, whatever it was, Tim's patronage was done of Rosenthal
0: what was herman to do now he would go to his new best friend of course so in exchange for a 1500 dollar payment towards the mortgage becker secured himself a 20 percent share in the profits and basically he would pay him his share and the raids would just go away but by april becker was under some serious pressure by his superiors including commissioner waldo to shut down rosenthal's place Rosenthal was brazenly flaunting his operation and if the newspapers are to be believed Becker asked Rosenthal to agree to a stage rage to get Waldo off the scent. Becker had to hide all of his corrupt grafting ways after all so Rosenthal refused repeatedly until Becker had no choice so with the diversion Becker manages to distract Rosenthal enough to raid his place. He chops up the poker tables, the stuss tables, and he arrests several gamblers, including Rosenthal's nephew. And then, to add insult to injury, an officer was put on duty inside the building, which was also the home of Herman and his wife, Lillian, and it was meant to deter Rosenthal from opening up his gambling setup on the very next day. This watch would remain in force for the next several months.
1: When Rosenthal confronted Becker about the raid, Becker allegedly just said, you know, I forgive the 1500, that mortgage that you owe me, that should cover the damages that we've caused to your gambling equipment. And so this was the final straw for Rosenthal and he had had enough. He announced far and wide that he was going to tell the world about just how extensive corruption is in the police force. Surprise, surprise, surprise. And expose all the grafting cops. And of all the names that he he could have said, Becker's name was the first. It was front and center in an affidavit that Rosenthal sold to the New York world. He pushed the story hard and he wanted to get as much attention to it as possible. And eventually he did, uh, including Commissioner Waldo, D.A. Whitman. He was even called upon by the grand jury to give a statement about all of these allegations uh, and if there was any truth to them. And had he lived after that fateful night at the Metropole, he would have met with even more politicians and officials who were ready to finally listen to him. Unfortunately, he was shot point blank outside of the Metropole on July 16th, 1912, and the rest of his truths and allegations were lost.
0: In the end, This was chalked up to be a gambler's war. Rosenthal versus Bridgie Weber or Sam Paul, another Lower East Side gangster, and with Becker involved as the cop who arranged it all, so Rosenthal wouldn't drag him down.
1: Because his name was starting to be associated with this whole thing, to prove rumors wrong, Sam Paul paid for Rosenthal's funeral as a sign of to the rest of the gambling underworld that he could not possibly hold any ill will toward rosenthal or hired anybody to kill him instead the cast of characters that will play their roles during endless court sessions all pointed their finger at lieutenant becker as the man behind the hired guns that he was the one that was so upset that he did it the gamblers took plea deals and told whatever they needed to on the stand to guarantee their own freedom and Unfortunately, Lieutenant Becker's eventual execution.
0: Was Rosenthal involved with just gambling dens and prostitution?
1: Oh, no. He was a man of many talents. Going back as far as February 1902, the New York Tribune published an article about a certain Beansy, going by nicknames here, being involved with voter fraud in favor of a Tammany candidate. So his job was to round up a number of willing men to vote several times in a district primary election. He and another fellow named Jojo, aka Joseph Skidmore, were arrested. And Skidmore was represented by a legal team consisting, but not just limited to, the nephew of Tim Sullivan himself. We keep seeing the same names recur and clearly Beansy had connections even back then. According to this particular article, the police caught up with Beansy at a place called the Antique Hotel at 4th and 12th. And by the sound of it, this was very much the kind of place that our Herman enjoyed. The deputies were so outnumbered by other rough and tumble fellows. There were about 35 other people when they were arresting Beansy that apparently revolvers had to be brought out. Even better than that... When Herman was being taken away, he allegedly passed a roll of several hundred dollars in bills to a friend as he was being dragged out of the place.
0: A hundred dollars back then was a lot, wasn't it?
1: Oh, just over thirty four hundred dollars in today's money and multiply that by quote unquote several bills enough to make an actual roll of bills.
0: Now, what else did our friend get up to? Because it seems like he was never very good at keeping his head down and not getting caught. Or is it just that drama happened to follow him? Because with all the stories about him walking around in flashy gold jewelry, the gold buckles, he really seems to have enjoyed being recognized.
1: It's very true that he was a recognizable guy. And it definitely bit him in the ass more than once. So we have another article from the Brooklyn Daily Eagle from July twenty eighth, nineteen o eight, where again Beansy, this time Beansy Rosenthal specifically, caused a near riot at the Brighton Beach track because he was arrested for violating the Hughes anti betting law by distributing marked programs. Basically, these were handouts with tips on how to bet, which horses to bet on, kind of giving people an advantage if they so chose to bet and place their bets with him because that's what he did he was recognized at the track so people knew his face people knew him well enough to recognize him as he's trying to get in and the authorities of the track so he was arrested but the actual owners of the track went so far as banning him he tries to enter at multiple gates with tickets and he ends up buying more and more expensive tickets to be able to get in. And even so, they refuse him entry on site, recognizing him, obviously, and banning him from every track racing under the Jockey Club supervision. So he was banned everywhere. And this is in 1908. To the point that even the Pinkertons got involved. The Pinkerton Agency was involved in enforcing this ban of Herman Rosenthal from every Jockey Club racetrack.
0: And hopefully we'll hear more about the Pinkerton agency in later episodes. Uh, But in our previous episode, we talked about Jack Sullivan. So Herman had been the best man at Jack's wedding and he even allegedly paid for it because Jack had gambled away all of his wedding fund in a single night. So this puts Herman and Jack as very close friends, right? So
1: how far back did that friendship go? So excitingly, we have an article for this too. I love newspapers. So there's an article from 1905, from December 26th, from the New York Times. Again, the New York Times really loved these guys. And it's an article about a Christmas dinner that was held for the Newsboys and it was being held at the Newsboys Athletic Club at 74 East 4th, which was run by Jack Sullivan. We'll talk a lot more about this place in another episode. But what's important for now is that Rosenthal is mentioned by name in this article, and specifically he's referred to as one of the old-time Newsboys that were now well-to-do. In context, him and other uh, people there... They're definitely really well off and they're kind of flaunting this money. Uh, Rosenthal enjoyed the evening so much that he promised to host a similar dinner for New Year's Eve the same year. Whether he did or not, unfortunately, we don't have any record of that. Uh, maybe we'll dig it up in another newspaper articles another time. And another name comes up in this article as well, and that's of Sam Paul again the same Sam Paul who would butt heads with Rosenthal in later years and who paid for Rosenthal's funeral.
0: So what we take away from the article is that Rosenthal explicitly is named as a former newsboy and as a close associate of Jack Sullivan, which suggests that maybe
1: they were newsies together. That seems about right. I mean during the murder trial the Friendship does come up, and it comes up that the guys have all known each other for about seventeen years, which would put them at meeting around the eighteen nineties. Now, by eighteen ninety nine, the newsboys went on strike against the New York World and the Journal over a price hike. Uh, there's a musical about that and everything. I don't know.
0: Nah, heard. never heard of it.
1: And <laughs> <laughs> never heard of it. I'm gonna go out a limb here. <laughs> And so I I think, I want to think that Herman and Sam Paul and Jack Sullivan and Bridgie Weber and a bunch of the other guys, they were all kind of in the same group and they all go back to around the same time. Some of them maybe even met during the strike because after all, our friend Tim Sullivan, the politician, paid to rent out an event hall for the cause. And there were over 3,000 newsboys showing up to the night of the rally alone so the likelihood of them meeting is pretty high
0: yeah it sounds like a really good place to make some lifelong friends and there's big tim again the patron saint of the
1: lower east side so i have maybe a more solid lead on their friendship but this is definitely a source that is kind of dubious at best Compared to some of the others we've used to piece the story together. But there's this book from 1892. It's called Darkness and Daylight in New York by Helen Stewart Campbell. It's a book exploring the slums of New York and the people that live in them. It was basically a sob story written by a well to do enough lady who wanted to tell, you know, the sad story of the pitiful immigrant unwashed masses. And there's an entire chapter on newsboys their social structure the brace memorial lodging house over at 9 duane street there's these beautifully detailed illustrations that actually served as a base for some set design for again a musical that i guess you've never heard of before one of these illustrations is a full page image it's an engraving probably based on a photo of some newsboys and we've got nicknames to go with it. And so there's bumlets and snotty and the king of bums. There's our Kings of New York. Again, a guy named Kelly, the rake Dutchie slobbery, Jack and whitey. Now it might be me entirely wanting to see what I want to see. So we're going to put a side by side photo and a scan of this image on our Instagram page for you, the listeners to judge for yourselves. But there's a newsie at the back who's allegedly nicknamed the Snitcher, and he looks really familiar. Very
0: familiar. Maybe Beansy. We don't know, but if that's the case, then we have evidence of Beansy in New York associating with some of the other Newsies as early as the 1890s.
1: Remember how I wanted to ambitiously release this episode two weeks ago and make this like a bi-weekly thing. And then as I was working on it, I went to fact check a really small detail and I came across an inconsistency that led me down a rabbit hole. I would say number 3,752 in this project. um, And the entire episode had to get scrapped.
0: What else is new?
1: (laughs) So in the article from 1902 about voter fraud, and the, the article from 1908 about the bands from the tracks, Beansy's real name is listed differently. So we do have Beansy as a baseline, and that is a nickname that he had for a very long time, unless it was the snitcher, we never know. But in 1902, he's referred to as Sigmund L. Rosenfeld, a.k.a. Beansy. And so I had clipped this article because of the Beansy, and then I kind of dismissed it because it obviously is a different name. And I was thinking maybe it was just a coincidence. But the 1908 article from The Tracks, which I found more recently, refers to B and Z as Rosenfeld or Rosenthal, better known as an and, and Side Rough and Tumble Fighter. So it seems like our guy, right? And so the article refers to him by both names, Sigmund Rosenfeld and Herman Rosenthal, and Beansy, so it's not really a stretch to assume that this is all one and the same person and kind of clarifies the 1902 article as him as well.
0: So he goes by Sigmund Rosenfeld, Herman Rosenthal, Beansy, and Jaime
1: to his closest friends, which makes tracking him down so difficult. It's not our worst. We have a lot more nicknames to go through for some of our other guys. But what we have from newspapers for this particular case, it's a treasure trove compared to other official documents. In other cases, we have more official documents and records and less newspaper articles. So at least we have something. So for Rosenthal, the only census record that I was able to find that I'm absolutely sure of is uh, one from 1910, where Herman and his wife, Lillian, are listed as long-term guests of the Sherman Square Hotel. And this place just got shadier every year after they lived there. His marriage certificate and death record exists, too. But I'm concerned that those are not entirely reliable because, see, there are two versions of his death record. One is from July 17th, 1912, so the day after he's shot. There's coroner's signatures. There's confirmation that it's a homicide. And then there is an edited document from August 26th. In the updated version, the record states that he's not a US citizen, born in in New York, like his first version says, but that he'd only been there for 29 years. And so this is what sent me down the weirdest rabbit hole.
0: Another rabbit hole. (laughs) Now, if he'd been in the country for 29 years, then that would mean that he immigrated as a child around 1883.
1: That's right. And what this also means is that he wouldn't be appearing in the 1880 census, so that's out. Unfortunately, the 1890 census doesn't exist. I had come across some records that I thought were young Herman working in a saloon, either with a father or an uncle. The saloon was very much in Tim Sullivan's jurisdiction, Tim did have a habit of owning saloons and that was kind of his way of giving back to the community and supporting it by providing jobs and stability so I wouldn't at all be surprised if this is one of those saloons that Tim owned and I kind of have this romantic vision that Herman maybe met Tim Sullivan as a young boy, grew up under his watchful eye I don't know
0: What about the 1900 census?
1: So we have we don't have 1880, we don't have 1890, we have 1910, and the 1900 census is interesting. Now, keeping in mind that the literally the only things we have to go by uh, as sources to corroborate the facts are newspapers and Rosenthal's tombstone. So his age, his birth date, and everything like that. The tombstone offers some key details. So we have his birth date, we have the fact that he did marry, and he had other siblings. There's clues that we kind of used to figure out, you know, whether the 19th census was correct. And so there are certain details to confirm, and hopefully the guess is correct. In 1900, there's a man by the name of Herman Rosenthal whose birth year matches, his place of birth matches, and there's other details about his background, He is listed as serving time as a patient or an inmate, maybe both, at Wards Island, which was men's ward for psychiatric care. I was about to dismiss this record entirely out of the realm of possibility because what are the chances that he is, you know, at at a psychiatric hospital at this point? Until I kind of started flipping through the pages digitally and reading all the other names that were on the list And there's at least two more names that appear in Herman's life later as friends. Um, So maybe that's where they met. Maybe they were all at Ward's Island receiving psychiatric treatment, and then that's how they became friends. Or maybe they all ended up there, having been arrested for some indiscretions previously, such as being part of a strike who knows so between this record and the photo from 1892 these are probably the least concrete records that we have whether they're believable or not it could be very very well be a different person altogether but they do kind of line up with the rest of our story
0: they do um do we have any do we have any record of him immigrating to new york or any evidence of where he was born
1: So if he wasn't born in New York, depending on which death record we believe, then kind of. So if we go by the dates of immigration that are listed on the 1900 census from Ward's Island and the 1910 census from the hotel and the death certificate, then there is a single lead that I was able to find from 1888, where a 16-year-old Russian tailor by the name of Herman Rosenthal sails from Glasgow to New York on the ship called the State of Nebraska. And this is the only person that I was able to find in Ellis Island Records where the age, name, birthplace line up as well as they do to all of this other stuff that we have. He's 16. If we go by the math and we go by the tombstone, he should be 14. It's not really a stretch of the imagination that he would have tacked on a couple of years to sound more believable that he can travel by himself. There are other records that we have on hand. Currently, I'm dismissing them. There's some inconsistencies, but maybe we'll come back to them another time. So for example, um, we don't have any believable marriage records. He was married twice. There was Dora Gilbert and then there was Lillian. Um, The parents listed on the Lillian Wedding certificate, allegedly, are Jacob and Rose or Jack and Rose, Titanic reference.
0: Do, 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 do.
1: <laughs> and, and the same names do appear on Rosenthal's death record. But then I actually found uh, Jack and Rose and their numerous other offspring in census records in 1900 and 1910. And the math just doesn't add up. I mean, they could have had kids young. But they would have been at least 10 years too young to have had Hermit as a son. Maybe they're related, maybe they're cousins or some sort of an uncle or, or something, but just the math doesn't add up, so at the moment I'm dismissing this particular record.
0: He was an interesting character and certainly a lot more colorful and influential than the way that he's portrayed in crime history these days. He seems to have had a legitimate foothold in the gambling world and a good reason to be upset when his business was forced to shut down.
1: And I can appreciate why he would be upset enough to push for the story about Becker wronging him to be in the newspapers. Um, you know, take take down as many with him as he's going down, right? Um, at the same time, he does seem to be acting too big for his britches he's so used to having Tim Sullivan in his corner. Maybe he really did think that he was safe from any misfortune that, that might befall him or anybody else involved with him because big Tim was always there to fix things before and to sweep things under the rug, to give Herman money whenever he asked. So of course Tim would always be there. And if Tim wasn't there, he's got other friends like Jack Sullivan that would always also have his back. So he kind of relied on that maybe a little bit too much considering. So Rosenthal has tried to do this before. So back in 1909, the Red Raven was raided. We talked about this, that that, uh, there was allegations that uh, somebody was snitching in the police department. Somebody had tipped off the gamblers. And the specific allegations were actually against detective Edward J. Reardon. He will come back up in our story again in 1909 he was the golden boy of the police force he was the star detective he was loved by everyone he was you know kind of at the top of his game and he was uh he answered to da william travers jerome he got dragged through the mud he allegedly uh was said to associate with rosenthal to the point that he had taken as much as $10,000 in bribes from him in that year. The case blew up so badly that Reardon loses his position with the police force to the point that he eventually actually opens his own private agency to prove, uh, one, his own innocence, but also this very same agency would then be hired as an independent investigator during Rosenthal's murder trials in 1912.
0: Herman clearly didn't know how to make friends or keep them. Still, after getting to know him better, who would benefit the most from his death?
1: I really think to answer that question, we need to dive deeper, more rabbit holes, and uh, talk about the lives of everyone else involved in this case. And there were a lot of people, and there were a lot of people that could benefit from it. So, what do you guys think? Did we miss something? Did we give you a clue as to why Herman had to go? Send us a note on our socials, at Kings of New York Podcast.
0: And as always, like and subscribe. Send us feedback, and we'll be back in a month on the 16th of September with more Kings of New York.